Let's turn in our Bibles once again this evening to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll read just verse 17 this evening. Ephesians 6, verse 17 reads, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So our focus once again tonight will be on this piece of armor, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to His Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this panoply, this complete armor of God. Help us to learn more about it tonight. Help us to learn how to use this armor specifically. Help us to learn how to wield the sword of the Spirit in this spiritual battle. And we ask that you would help us to win battles as we fight them in your name, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, for his glory and also for the good of our souls, help us in that battle and help us in the preaching and hearing of the word during these moments ahead. And we ask it in Jesus Christ, your son's name. Amen. We're considering the whole armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6. We started a few weeks ago. Um, I've really started in verse 14, but we have been had this passage starting at verse 10 before us, started back in, I think it was the month of June with the basketball camp, but now it's drawing to a close here. So we're looking at the whole armor of God today, both this morning and this evening. Our attention has been on the sword, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And the outline that I'm using is two things we covered this morning, the identification of the sword very simple, Paul identifies it. It's the Word of God for us. That's the Scriptures, the Bible, the Word of God written. And then secondly, we saw this morning the preparation of our sword for battle. And tonight we come to the third thing, the use of your sword in battle. So that's our heading for tonight. That's all we'll aim to cover. The use of your sword in battle. I will, in some of the things I say at the beginning part, uh, cover a little bit of the ground again that we saw this morning already, but just in passing, but it, it, I want to remind you of it. But let's turn, as we begin this, back to Luke chapter 4. And the reason for that is I want us to consider Jesus Christ in this account in Luke 4. There's a very Similar account right at the beginning of Matthew chapter 4. They're parallel accounts. They're not exactly the same, but they're parallel accounts of the same instance where Jesus, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, was tempted in a very concentrated way by the devil. And it really is a picture for us of this spiritual battle that we're in. And it also is a very excellent demonstration of Jesus, and I think what he's doing here is he is wielding 
the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, as he does battle with the wicked one, and he um, aims to fight against the wiles of the devil that were here unleashed against him. So let's read the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 4. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, having being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, and we could say this is the first temptation, this is the first um, while of the devil to try to entice Jesus to sin. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So there's Jesus deflecting Satan's temptations with his sword, parrying, we could say, with, against the devil. And he is using the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. You see how he does that in each one of these three temptations that the devil comes at him with. Then verse 5, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So I wanted to point you to Jesus tonight and use him as an example. Really, he is a model for us in this occasion in the desert where he was tempted by the devil we are not going to drill down into the specifics of the devil's temptations of Jesus too much. I did that some years ago. I know you could all use a refresher. I could use a refresher. But I want especially to dwell on the way that he used the sword of the Spirit against the temptations of the devil. He used the Word of God. Three temptations are given, three specific temptations. The goal of Satan in every one of these temptations was to get Jesus to sin. Jesus fought back. He stood his ground in the evil day, we could say, and he stood in the end. 
and he demonstrated for us the use of the sword of the Spirit of God. We could say he demonstrated for us also what James said in James chapter 4, verse 7. Resist the devil. That Jesus did using the sword of the Spirit. And James then promised, if you resist the devil, the devil will flee from you. And that's what we see here. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. I believe we could say that this instance here in the desert and Jesus dealing with Satan the way he did is the demonstration, it is the model par excellence of how Christ's disciples should use the sword of the Spirit. In another instance, um, back in Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus was arrested, you can look back there if you'd like, it's Matthew 26 and verse 53. Jesus said, as they were arresting him, do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, at that time, he could have prayed that way. And if he had, the father would have provided him with the 12 legions of angels, several thousands of angels to fight on his behalf. And he would not have been arrested if he did not want to be. Could have happened. But he didn't pray that way. And there are probably many answers as to why he didn't. Some very obvious ones. I think no doubt, at least in part, that was true that Jesus did not pray that way because he wanted to instruct his disciples how they should act in such situations. His apostles who were there with him, one of whom took out a sword, you remember, and struck off the high priest's servant's ear, uh, Jesus wanted to instruct them how they should act when they were in situations like he was. And so we certainly have great instruction in the incident in the desert in Luke 4 as well as Matthew 4. Or think of how when Jesus was going to the cross and he was being mocked and he was being tried and he was being spit upon and beaten and things like that. Um, he didn't have to endure that. He could have called for 12 legions of angels then or more. Remember, he was doing things when he was going to the cross, when he was being arrested, when he was being persecuted and spit upon and mocked, when he was being nailed to the cross and when he hung on the cross. He was doing things that we as Christians never will. But he was also being sorely tried and tempted by the devil to sin right up to the very end of his life. And so he was still at those times demonstrating how we should live in our more mundane circumstances of life as we face the wiles of the devil and the temptations of the devil to sin. And certainly he was doing that in the desert I emphasize this morning that God's word is very powerful. Christ's word is very powerful. He, in Genesis chapter 1, God spoke and the worlds came into being. He spoke, it says in Psalm 33, and it was done. 
Jesus spoke in the incident when he was arrested in John 18, verse 6, and the Jews and the Romans all together fell down in front of him as he said, I am he. But Jesus did not do anything miraculous there in the desert. So when you look at that passage and you're tempted to say, well, I'm not the Son of God. I'm not the Messiah. Remember this. He didn't do anything miraculous. In other words, you may try this at home. And you should try this at home. You should imitate your Lord in the way that he wielded the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So my one main direction as we consider the use of your sword in battle is that you would resist Satan by using Scripture as Jesus did. Notice the, how the focus of Satan's attacks against Jesus was that he wanted to make Jesus sin. You take some time to read over those things, meditate on them, uh, read a commentary or two if you'd like, but that's, that's the goal of Satan. Yes, there were greater goals than just getting him to sin, he didn't want Jesus to do his saving work on the cross. That's there. But we can boil it down to this, that he wanted to make Jesus sin, and Jesus fought against that. That's Satan's goal in regard to us. He wants to make us sin. All day, every day, all the time, that is his goal. It's not just Satan, of course. There are many hosts, spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places that we are fighting against. That's the spiritual battle. The point here is today, we should respond to those attacks just as our Lord did. So to that end, you need to know the Scripture like we heard this morning. You need to know the Word of God. That's what we need to do. You need to know the Scripture. I emphasize that especially this morning, so I'm not going to dwell on it. This evening, we need to know the Scripture. In a sense, we could say that um, that's still part of the preparation that I talked about this morning, the preparation to use the sword. But most of what I say this evening in terms of knowing the Scripture, to use it, is going to be a bit more focused. This morning was more general. But I still would say we need to know the Word of God and we need to know the whole Bible Old Testament as well as New Testament. Many Christians don't think that the Old Testament is very important. They say it's not as important as the New Testament. They don't spend time reading it as a result. They miss out on a lot because the New Testament assumes all throughout a knowledge of the Old Testament. But we need to know the whole Bible. A problem for many people is not that they don't know any scripture that they could use as the sword of the Spirit. It's that they don't know, in many cases, the right meaning of the Word of God. And a big reason for that is that they don't know enough of the Bible to properly understand it. Think of the statement we studied when we went through the confession in the adult Bible class. And there's that statement in the confession that says, the best interpreter of Scripture is the Scripture itself. So the better you know 
the whole of the Bible, the better you will be able to understand any given, any specific part of the Bible that you come to and you want to understand better. You want to understand any particular part of the Bible better? Read the whole Bible regularly. Matthew Henry said this, The Word of God is our sword, and faith in that Word is our shield. We should therefore be mighty in the Scriptures, and we should go in that might, go forth and go on in our spiritual warfare, and know what is written, for it is for our learning for our use. If we're going to use the Scripture as a sword, we have to know the Scripture. And then I would say, especially, learn texts, I said I'm going to focus more narrowly, learn texts that relate specifically to your peculiar sins. We should all learn texts that relate to all sins, because it's probably true of every single one of us, and it probably wouldn't take very hard work to figure it out if you've never thought through this in this way. You could take every one of the Ten Commandments and figure out ways that you violate each one of those commandments. You probably don't violate them in the same ways that I do. I'm sure there are certain commandments that I violate more than you do on a regular basis in my thoughts, perhaps in my words or things like that. I know those sins are in my heart, even if I uh, can keep from manifesting them outwardly on a regular basis, but they're there. Well, I'm saying we should know our peculiar sins. Jesus, when Satan gave a specific temptation, he didn't just throw out any Bible verse and say, you know, Satan is afraid of God. And so he's afraid of God's word. So I'll just throw out any text I think of. He had very specific texts. And as you study this passage, you'll find out exactly how specific they were. And they answered the exact temptation that Satan threw at him. Now, Jesus' knowledge of the scripture was encyclopedic. I think it's safe to say that. Yours is not, mine is not the way Jesus is. And then there's this, he had no sin, but he was enemy number one to Satan, and he faced the worst attacks of Satan, I believe, that Satan ever gave to any human being. He was not a mere human being, and he could take a lot more from Satan without bending and breaking, but he was sorely tempted by the devil as a true man who is also truly God. And so my point is, Jesus had to be ready for anything, but he picked specific texts that would be helpful and would be texts that would answer the designs of Satan and ultimately thwarted the evil one in his attack. But for us, I would say the first thing then, as we think about knowing the Scripture, and I'm still on that point, you need to know your sins then. If you're going to use texts that relate specifically to your peculiar sins, because every one of us has sins that probably we're tempted to, to commit over and over again. There's some sins that, like we like to say, there are, there are weak spot, our soft spot, there are Achilles heel. The, the Puritans like to call it their... Um, 
besetting sins, the ones that they're constantly falling down in and having to confess to God. You have sins like that, and so you need to know your sins. When I was a fairly young Christian, around the age of 20, I was still relatively new to reading my Bible, all, learning all that's involved in this battle. I knew enough to know that one of my peculiar sins, one of my besetting sins, was the sin of lust. And so I, I never heard any sermons on the spiritual armor. I hadn't heard at that time in my life a sermon on wielding the sword of the Spirit, but I knew enough from my Bible and other things I was beginning to read and talking with other Christians. I knew enough to know I need to memorize some scripture that will help me against those peculiar sins. And so I did. I, I memorized all the sections of Proverbs 5 and 6 and 7 that related to those sins of lust. And I memorized other texts in the Word of God. Some I can still pull up today and some I can still pull them up today because I still use them as part of my spiritual sword in the spiritual battle that I face every day. So you need to know your sins. Do you, I'm asking every one of you now, do you know your sins? If someone sat down and asked you that question, do you know your sins? What are your sins? And I'm not saying anybody who comes up to you and asks that question, you have to tell them. I'm just saying, could you? Whether you would or not, could you? Do you know them? Could you tell someone the ins and outs of them? The occasions that the devil is able to especially use against you. The arguments he uses, the thoughts he puts in your mind to make you think even if it's for a split second, it's okay. You can talk like that. You can think like that. You can act like that. Do you know your sins? And if you do, do you have then specific scriptures that are at the tip of your tongue so that in the moment of trial, part of what Paul calls the evil day, that you can use like Jesus used in the desert against the devil so that you will be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Could you state it? Repeat it if you had to. And stand on it. Yes? No? Maybe? If not, why not? Well, I've only been a Christian for two weeks. Yeah, this is not a bad excuse. Most of the faces I'm looking at don't have that excuse to fall upon. We, I read it this morning, Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The battle is real. The battle is hot. The battle is tough. This is how it's fought. You have to wield the sword of the Spirit. Take the time to learn your specific sins. If you say, well, I, I think I basically know what they are, take the time to know what they are, and then engage in the fight the way we're going to hear about tonight, the way Jesus did, and 
in the process of winning more and more of those battles, you know what else will happen? God will show you more sins in your life. Because you will think, now I can rest. And the point is, no, you can't. The more you learn, the more you walk with God, the more he will show you about your peculiar sins. But take the time to learn them. Spend time thinking about what they are. You say, well, I I can't figure it out. I've been working on that. Ask some mature Christians that know you. And, And if they are mature Christians, and especially if they really know you, I bet they don't have to think too hard about it. And hopefully... As mature Christians, they'll have the courage and the grace to help you understand what they are if you don't yet. Read some good books on sanctification, on self-examination, especially if you can find a good Puritan book on the topic. Read it. Read the Bible, especially, like I said this morning, and read it with that goal in view, if you never have. Another text I quoted this morning was Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, where David said, Lord, um, show me, reveal to me if there is any wicked way in me. Show it to me. That should be one of our prayers. And it should always be our sentiment whenever we sit down to the Word of God to read it whenever we sit down in the house of God to hear the word preached to us. Lord, show me. Show me who I really am in ways that I don't see yet, especially if I think I'm a pretty good guy. Show me who I really am, Lord. So you need to know your sins. And then this is the second part of it. Um, And it's this. Second part of how to wield the sword. You, You learn your sins Then, here's the second part of it, retrieve, and I said learn some texts that go along with it. Then, here's the second part, retrieve those scriptures, those texts, quote those texts, state those texts. That's exactly what we see Jesus doing in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. The devil says A, Jesus says B. And B, Jesus' words, was always a quote of the Word of God. It's his own word, for sure, but it was the Word of God. It was the scriptures of the Old Testament that he quoted. So retrieve those texts that you've learned to go along with your sins, and then stand on those texts. Go back with me to Ephesians 6. If you're not already there, Ephesians 6. And let's look at verse 11 and verse 13 and 14. Bring those texts up that you've learned and then stand on them. I take that language from Paul's words here, starting in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 13 and verse 14. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. The devil assaults you. 
You want to stand. You want to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, and so on. And then we come down to verse 17, taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Think of that illustration we had in the Old Testament. I think it was 1 Samuel 23, somewhere in there. Maybe it was 2 Samuel 23, that... Um, the, that, that um, I can't remember his name now. Shema, I think it might have been. He was guarding that lentil field. And, and no, he was not the guy. He was the guy guarding the lentil field. But there was another guy who fought the battle. He stood his ground, it said, until his hand clung to his sword. He couldn't, he couldn't remove the sword from his hand easily. Maybe he had to rest a while and then finally his grip would loosen or maybe he had to peel his fingers off one at a time. The point is, he was gripping the sword and he kept using it till he won the day. That's what we need to do, brethren, by learning texts that we can use when we're assaulted by temptation and then bring them up to our minds, quote them, maybe out loud, state those texts and stand. Remember, think of that vision of the guy's hand cleaving to his sword. And remember, we're not talking about magic here. We're not talking about just, if I can just remember to quote some scripture, the devil will flee. No, no, there's the picture. The hand cleaving to the sword. It was not easy for Jesus. He had to use his brain. He had to think. He came up with the right text and he quoted it. He was tired he was hungry. Oh yeah, he was the son of God, right. God doesn't get hungry, but he was man. Man does get hungry. He was hungry. He was tempted sorely, tempted to a far greater degree than you or I ever have been or ever will be. And he fought. It's not magic. It's not just say some word like an incantation and the devil will flee. And the Christian life demands perseverance. So you use your sword and you use it till your hand has to cleave to it, but keep fighting. Now, interesting question, especially as we think of Jesus in the desert. To whom do we quote those texts? Jesus quoted them to Satan, the tempter, right? Notice a difference between Jesus and us. Jesus, like Eve in the garden, had a direct conversation with the devil, right? Had a direct conversation with the devil. You don't. You're fighting against the devil and all the other spiritual hosts of wickedness. But when you are assaulted, there is no need for you to speak to the devil. I think in many ways it's not healthy to speak to him. Sometimes I tremble a little bit when I hear Christians just flippantly address the devil directly. But that's another subject. But there are other sources of temptation to whom we can speak, right? Remember, there's the world and the flesh as well as the devil. So think of the world tempting us. Does not Satan sometimes use, sometimes use people in this world as his instruments to tempt us? Of course he does. So let's imagine you're asked to do something by an unbeliever that is sinful. 
you can say, I'm a Christian. And God tells me this in Scripture. Jesus Christ, my Lord, says this. You quote the Scripture. He may not give up trying to persuade you to sin, but he might. You might have to quote another text. Maybe you can have a, a lengthy session of witnessing to him just because you're using the sword of the Spirit there in that way. He may not give up, but you quote the Scripture to him. At the very least, you are serving him notice that you are not interested. Maybe he wants you to go get drunk with him. No big deal. We'll get an Uber ride home. You can sleep it off. Nobody will get hurt. No harm, no foul. And you say to him, no, no. My Lord has said, do not get drunk on wine. Or beer or whiskey is the meaning. Or someone wants to tempt you to commit sexual immorality. You can quote a text to him like uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. The word of God tells me I need to flee immorality. Or quote the seventh commandment to him. My, the word of God says to me, I'm a Christian. You shall not commit adultery. That's a way to wield the sword. You could say, no thanks, I'm not interested, and walk away. I'm just saying, this is, this is wielding the sword of the Spirit. Do it. Or someone like in Proverbs 1, it talks, Solomon talks to his son about young men who want to entice a young man to steal. And so you could, if that happens in your life ever, you could say, the Bible says you shall not steal. Or maybe someone's talking to you about income taxes and he tells you not just about a legitimate loophole, but a way to cheat on taxes and no one will ever notice. That's a time to quote the scripture, a time like that. Or someone is trying to train you to be a salesman and he tells you ways to lie to customers. All those kinds of things. You quote the word of God. Or maybe someone tells you it's okay. If someone ever speaks to you like I just heard that person speak to you, they speak that maliciously, that maliciously to you, then it's okay for you to answer in kind. You can speak maliciously to them. And you should say at a time like that, no, we're supposed to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We're to love our enemies. My Savior said that when it says in the Bible that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. People spoke evil to him. He did not speak evil back to them. And it says in Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil. So you, for their hatred, you do what the psalmist says and you return love. You can answer people like that with the sword of the Spirit. The flesh is another source of temptation, maybe our biggest source of temptation. The powers of darkness work right along with our flesh because there's another point at which we're unlike Jesus. Scripture says that um, the devil had nothing in Jesus. In other words, when he tried to get his hook in Jesus... There was nothing could, he could really get his hook on because there was no sin nature in Jesus. But the devil does have something in us, if you will, even if we're Christians and faithful Christians, we have remaining sin. 
So the flesh, our own flesh, is another source of temptation in our spiritual warfare. So you know who else you can quote the texts to? That's right, to you. You quote them to yourself. And maybe that's the one that you're going to find yourself most often quoting Scripture too. So I'm just going to take the rest of our time here at this point and just do what I'll call a little workshop on using the sword of the Spirit. I'll just give some sins and then I'll give some examples of texts that we can use. And maybe you'll learn something you never know, or maybe for you this is old hat. But not everyone here has been around for a long time in Christian circles or in this church. And so you'll find, hopefully, some of you will find it very instructive. Others will at least find it suggestive. Hopefully you'll be able to find something at least, no matter who you are, you can take it and run with it in your battle against sin. And God will help to use these things to enable you to run more faithfully in the ways of God's commandments. Let's read the... Um, the second temptation here in Luke chapter 4, the second temptation of Satan to Jesus, Luke 4, verses 5 through 8, and just use that as our starting point. It says, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory... For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So Jesus went in his answer, right to the heart of the matter. What was the main sin that would have been involved in if, if he did what Satan said? Worship him. So Jesus went right to the heart of the matter, and he said, that's a non-starter. I would never consider that. Why? Because that sin, and it's sin of a gross character, it's idolatry. And if anything is true in the Bible, it's that we should not worship any God but the true God. I should worship no God but my heavenly Father. I won't. And here's the reason, for Scripture says. So he went right to the heart of the matter. And of course, in this temptation, Satan was being subtle and he was trying to use a motive, just like he used a motive in the first temptation to tell Jesus to turn the stones into bread. He was using the motive that he knew Jesus would be hungry, and he was. Well, here he was using this motive, that Jesus had an idea of some of the suffering he was going to have to go through to save his people. And so I'm going to give him all the kingdoms of the world the easy way. He can bypass the suffering. That's what he was enticing Jesus to do, to bypass a life of suffering. And I'll give you the kingdoms of this world right now. So let's just take that as our starting point then, and I'll just jump to the temptation that many of us face, probably all of us face to one degree or another, to be impatient. Impatience in general. We're not going to be given the kingdoms of this world, other than that we will be given the kingdom of God. We will inherit it. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
but it's a little bit different, this temptation of Jesus. But we're tempted to impatience. Well, your sword can consist of this text. And you use the example of Jesus, and you, you can state it out loud, you can go over it in your mind. Or you can use the example of Joseph in the book of Genesis. God delivered him. He was tempted to be impatient. He was tempted to say, I'm just going to mail it in. I don't, I'm not going to try to work hard. I'm not going to try to be honest and be a good servant of the jailer here. And I'm just going to act like the rest of the criminals here and be complaining all the time and use wicked language and not worship my God. No, he was patient. God delivered him. God raised him up to be a leader in Egypt and a leader of the people of God. Think about Joseph. Talk to yourself about Joseph. Quote Joseph's words that you might have Joseph's perspective when you're suffering and you think it's unjust suffering. But as for you, you meant it for evil against me. Joseph said that to his brothers. But God meant it for good. And quote that to yourself. And you think of God's words uh, there and J Joseph's words about God. God did that to, to bring about, as it is this day, to bring about good, to save many people alive. Quotes a scripture like that. Quote from, from a chapter like James chapter 5. In chapter 5 of James Verses 7 through 11, there are a number of statements about impatience, one of which is James 5, 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. State that to yourself. Repeat it. Turn it over in your mind. Pray for grace to do what it says. That's how you use the sword of the Spirit. Use the sword of the Spirit when you're tempted to be impatient. Again, related to that, you're in a difficult situation. Yes, it's hard to be patient, but sometimes added to that difficulty is this. You think, I shouldn't have to endure all this. I've been dealing with this sin of this other person. It might be someone very close to you. Could be a spouse, could be a child, could be a parent, an unbelieving parent. Could be a Christian, could be a non-Christian, could be in the workplace, wherever it is. I shouldn't have to endure all this. It's difficult. Let me give you a text or two. John 12 is one that I've found helpful many times in my life. John 12, verses 23 to 25 if you look at that. And this, and this is what I try to do in my life. I'm facing this kind of thing. Not that I ever face that as a pastor, that I ever find people that are hard to deal with. No, but sometimes in my life I just do. Well, I didn't mean it like that, but. John 12. 23 to 25, Jesus' words. Remember, he's about, he's about to become arrested that night, later that night. So he speaks about what, he's about what is about to happen. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come. Up to this point in John's gospel, my hour is not yet. Now the hour has come 
that the Son of Man should be glorified. And you know Jesus' language here in this part of the gospel. It means it's time for me to die. And then he states this, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And then it says, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone serves me, let him follow me. I take that passage and I repeat it to myself. I said, here was Jesus facing death. I think my situation is so hard. Jesus was facing death. He said, for me, dying is like being a grain of wheat. And what I need to do with the will of my Father is to be like a little grain of wheat. They don't jump up and down and cry and yell. They're dropped in the ground. They fall there. They die. And then they bear much fruit. And I say to myself, that's what Jesus, my Lord, did. And I'm part of the fruit, thanks be to God. And he's still bearing fruit to this day from going through that one act of self-denial, self-abnegation, being like a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying. And then he goes on in the next verse to say, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, he's saying, now you, Dave, do what I did, fall into the ground and die. That's what you're supposed to do if you're a follower of me. I'm not supposed to love my life. I'm not supposed to think everybody doing what I want them to do is what I need in my life. Just as an aside, I hate that statement. I need you to do this. Uh, actually, I don't need anybody to do anything. The only thing I need to do is what my Lord tells me to do. And sometimes, because you won't do what I would like you to do, I need to fall into the ground and die. That's how I do this. And that's how you can do this. You may do this at home. Another text similar to it, I want to take the time for it. 1 Peter 2, verses 20 and 21, where you have the same, the same thing. It's talking about Jesus going to the cross and it says in there in 1 Peter 2, verses 20 and 21, What credit is it if when you are beaten for your fault you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable for, before God. For to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you. In other words, He suffered. So you're saying, all these people are doing all these unjust things to me. Well, the message of the cross is deal with it. Be like Jesus. Embrace the suffering. Be patient. Keep pressing on. You'll bear fruit in the, last, in the end, at least in the last day, you will bear a lot of fruit. Maybe you'll bear some fruit in this life. Maybe the persons you're praying for and trying to be a good witness to will get a clue 
and repent themselves someday. But that's not your, your, your patience doesn't hinge on their repentance. Or most of us face pride at one time or another. You deal with pride in your life. You deal with self-centeredness. Here's a good text. John 3, verse 30. The words of John the Baptist. Pride means I think I'm all that. I'm not so much about worshiping God and trying to make God everything to everyone else. So John the Baptist said it this way. He must increase I must decrease. You catch yourself being proud, being self-centered, easy text to memorize, quote it to yourself. Meditate on it. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Who makes you to differ? It's a good text to memorize. You deal with pride. These people, they don't get it. Who makes you to differ? The only reason you know things they don't know is because God has showed it to you. He's opened your eyes. He's opened your mind. What do you have that you did not receive? Why should you look down on other people? Or here's a better Christian way to look at it. How can you look down at other people, sinner that you are? Or I like 1 Corinthians 15, 28 as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 28, telling about the end of the age after the resurrection. And Paul writes, Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him. That's God the Father who put all things under him that God may be all in all. What is the end goal of everything that goes on in this universe? Not that I may be all in all. And that's the mindset of pride, that I am all in all and I want to be all in all. So here's a wonderful text to help you. The goal that Christ was aiming for was that God the Father would be all in all. And since I call myself a Christian, that's supposed to be the conscious goal of my life as well. God, help me to do it. Or maybe my sin is anger, sinful anger. Ephesians 4.26 is a good text. Many, many good texts in the Bible on this and on all these things. And this is one of my pieces of advice as well, brethren. I, I have a list of sins and texts that I've accumulated over the years. And, what, and, and my best texts might not be your best texts. You might not even like my texts, but I'm just saying, you might get some suggestions here. The texts I like to choose are especially the ones that when I read them, and then I get down on my knees and pray about those sins, and open to those texts and try to pray into those texts, I'm just going to confess to you, many of those texts are the texts that make me feel the worst. They make me feel the smallest. Because I know that those are the best texts for me. I find them extremely helpful. They, they're, 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 they're medicine 
that goes to the spot that needs it. Just a side suggestion. But Ephesians 4, 26, the first part of the verse there, speaking about anger. Be angry and do not sin. Quote from Psalm 4. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. You're constantly getting angry, all right? You don't have to have zero anger in your life. If, if that's your, one of your main sins, I would aim for zero anger because most of your anger is probably sinful anger. But the scripture is acknowledging there's, there is such a thing as righteous anger, righteous indignation. If you don't ever have it, you should try to cultivate it. But if you have sinful anger, you should be trying to mortify it. So, excellent text. Be angry and do not sin. And learn to evaluate your anger when it comes up. I mean, is this sinful anger or is this righteous anger? I think a lot of people who have a temper, they really do have a problem with anger, they find a lot of righteous anger in their lives. And often when I try to talk with them about it, I don't really judge it the exact same way. I think they have a lot of sinful anger they're not seeing. But that's the goal. Be angry and not sin. Excellent text. I like this one too. James 1.20 The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I find myself getting angry all the time. Too often I find myself justifying it. I think there's a good purpose. Good text for me. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Many, many Proverbs. I won't take the time for any of them. I have two written down here. Proverbs 14, 29. Proverbs 19, 19. Take a concordance. Especially if you're, let's say one of your main sins is the sin of anger. There's my, one of my recommendations too. Just take out a concordance. Use the book of Proverbs. Use the whole word, word of God, but especially the book of Proverbs. Look up the words wrath. Look up the word anger. And then go to town. Figure out what texts help you the most. Set to memorizing them, praying over them. Or how about the sins of foolish in sinful spats with your spouse. I just had uh, some, some premarital counseling sessions recently and went over these things. It wasn't a peculiar problem of the people I was counseling, not to my knowledge, but it was just a subject we were going over. Had a lot of proverbs and things. So just you end up finding yourself getting into these arguments and, and there's really no good reason for them. But you notice a pattern in your life. Well, start wielding the sword of the Spirit in ways that you haven't, going after those sins. Here's a text, Proverbs 13, 10. By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Maybe the reason I'm always getting into these arguments is pride. And I'm going to assume not my wife's pride. I mean, maybe that's part of it. But I'm going to assume it's my pride. And I'll take out my concordance and look up pride and humility. Or here's another text, Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now there's food for meditation, isn't there, brethren? So you get a harsh word from the kitchen 
or from the living room, wherever you are. I'm not, I'm not saying it's the wife or the husband. I'm just saying. You get a harsh word. You, you memorize a text like this. It dawns on you. This is how are all of our spats start. And Solomon says that's how they should end. The harsh word comes. What do you do next? Did you say something, dear? And if there's another harsh word, honey, I think we need to have a conversation. Let's sit down and do it. Soft answer turns away. And many, many more Proverbs and and New Testament texts, like the one I quoted from already, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, 26 through 32. Excellent. Colossians 3, 12 to 15, about how we should live in love toward one another, be peaceable with one another, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave us, just like at the end of Ephesians 4. Matthew 7, 12, the golden rule. You know, I mean, it's, it's so simple, so brief. Do to others what you would have them do to you. That's why it's called the golden rule. Bring that up in your mind when you're tempted to repay evil for evil. Matthew 5, 9, again, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. The harsh word comes. Lord, help me to remember. Blessed are the peacemakers. Wield the sword of the Spirit. You have fears of all different kinds. Some people are natively fearful. Fearful about this, that, and the other thing. I'll just have to bring this to a close. I'll just give you some texts. Memorize the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 28. Don't fear those who can only kill the body. You put the devil himself in that category. That's the worst he can do to you. The worst he can do to any one of us. To quote our sister recently, it's the point that she was making when she said the best case scenario, the worst case scenario, if I die, is the best case scenario because I'm a Christian. Don't be afraid. Psalm 56, verse 3, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. Helps you take your mind, your eyes off of the things or the people you're afraid of and put them on God where they belong. Use any and every text from last Sunday's, I think it was last Sunday's, adult Bible class lesson of Pastor Smith on the sovereignty of God. God is ruling over all this. He's bringing to pass. God's got it. He's got my back. Or maybe it's fear of persecution that you're afraid of. Fear of persecution. I talk to people sometimes. And they think like I do, you know, maybe, maybe we're headed in this country for a time of persecution. Maybe it won't be that far from now. Maybe people like me who have lived, lived you know, several decades in this country and know nothing but peace, even as Christians, and we have spiritual battles, we have people that don't like us because we're Christians, etc. Maybe we'll have genuine, bona fide persecution in our lifetime. Maybe not. But if you worry about that, read the scriptures, pick out some texts, 
A couple of my suggestions are 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. I've had Christians say to me, I, you know, there's all the afflictions that come. I, I think I, you know, God has helped me. I can handle it. I just think, Lord, don't ever let me be persecuted because I could never handle it. I could never handle being, you know, burned at the stake or whatever it is that comes to pass. Meditate on that. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Or a text like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God will never permit you to suffer, to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And then believe that and walk through this world. Like, like it says in the Proverbs, the righteous are bold as a lion. And believe what Paul said. God has given you all this spiritual armor. Then you say what Paul said, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let me just, well, I'm not even going to take the time to do it, but I'm going to mention the text. I was going to turn you to Acts 19. Acts 19.11-16. to 16. There's an account where it talks about how Paul worked all these miracles in the city of Ephesus on his second missionary journey, I think it was. And Paul uh, even had people come and, and touch his body with handkerchiefs, and then people would take him away and touch um, lame people with him, and they would be healed. And he would speak a word, and demons would leave people. So it says there were these seven Jew, Jewish exorcists who were going around trying to do what Paul did. And so they went around and they said, um, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, I command you, demons, to come out of that person. And they didn't have the success of the Apostle Paul. It says they were doing that this one time, these seven brothers, and they were trying to have this exorcism. And they said, Paul just spoke the name of Jesus. So they said, we're going to speak the name of Jesus. And they did, they did that, and the demons did not flee. Instead, the demons empowered the man to beat up the seven brothers. So they ended up fleeing, bloodied from the house. Here's my point. Perhaps you have tried to use the word of God in the battle against the devil. But maybe it seems to you there is no power. Remember, the word of God is not a book of magic. You don't quote the scripture like it's hocus pocus or like it's an incantation, like abracadabra. That's not how it works. You have to know God. And their one way to know God is through Jesus Christ who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And if you do not know God and walk with God, you can quote scripture till you're blue in the face. And you will not know the power of God and you will not be wielding the sword of the Spirit. The one way to know God is to repent of your sins and to believe in Jesus Christ who is the way and the truth and the life. May God bring you to the saving knowledge of Him today. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would take your word and write it upon all of our hearts. Father, help us to learn the scriptures better and help us to learn better how to wield the sword of the Spirit. Bring sinners here tonight to saving knowledge of you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And glorify your name in all of our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus, your Son's name. Amen.